This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. The World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global health emergency. More than 16,000 cases of the viral illness have been reported this year. The alert, the WHO's highest, was last used in January 2020 with SARS-CoV-2. It is meant to spur countries to mount a coordinated international response. Although monkeypox rarely kills healthy adults, it can be dangerous for children, pregnant women, and immunocompromised people. A day after Ukraine and Russia had signed a deal to resume grain exports from Ukraine's Black Sea ports, Russian missiles hit Odessa, the biggest of those ports. A Ukrainian foreign ministry spokesman accused Vladimir Putin of, quote, spitting in the face of the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who brokered the agreement. The attack breaks the conditions of the deal and could already signal its demise. The Biden administration authorized another weapons delivery to Ukraine worth $270 million. An American official said that hundreds of Russian soldiers are dying each day in the war. Earlier, the CIA estimated that 15,000 had been killed so far. Separately, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, told the Wall Street Journal that he would not countenance any ceasefire that let Russia retain territory it had taken. Google has sacked a software engineer, Blake Lemoyne, who last month shared his belief that LAMDA, the company's chatbot, had become, quote, sentient with the Washington Post. He said that, without knowing better, he'd think he was talking to, quote, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid that happens to know physics. Google dismissed Mr. Lemoyne's claims as unfounded and said his behavior violated the company's employment and data security policies. The UN's top court ruled that a case accusing Myanmar of committing genocide against Rohingya Muslims can continue, striking down objections from the country's ruling military junta. The International Court of Justice will now try to establish how responsible the state was for the violence that caused hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas to flee. Cuba's parliament announced that the country will hold a referendum on legalizing same-sex marriage and surrogate parenthood. The National Assembly approved an update to Cuba's family law, which would also allow same-sex couples to adopt children and strengthen legal protections for children and the elderly. The public will now vote on the matter on September 25th. Xinjiang, a region in the far west of China, has warned that it faced flash floods, mudslides, and risks to agriculture amid forecasts of more unusually high temperatures in the coming days. Some 20% of the world's cotton is produced in the area. Since mid-June, much of China has baked under brutal heat waves, which are attributed to climate change. And word of the week. Lanweilo a Chinese term for unfinished buildings. Across China, people are halting mortgage payments on such homes to protest construction delays. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Russia tries to woo Africa. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, embarks on Sunday on a visit to Egypt, Ethiopia, Uganda, and Congo-Brazzaville. The trip is, in part, a prelude to a Russia-Africa summit scheduled for next year, 
but Mr. Lavrov has more immediate goals. Russia wants international support for its invasion of Ukraine, about which some African countries have expressed ambivalence. It also wants to convince the continent's leaders that Western sanctions, not Russia's war of choice, are to blame for rising food and petrol prices. Ultimately, Russia hopes to win African support in a wider ideological battle against the West. China seeks the same. To foster goodwill, the Kremlin plays up the Soviet Union's historical support for African decolonization movements. Writing in several African newspapers on Friday, Mr. Lavrov said, unlike the West, Russia, quote, had not stained itself with colonial crimes and pledged to, quote, continue to pursue a peace-loving foreign policy. Ukrainians may disagree. The Pope's Pilgrimage of Penance When Pope Francis arrives in Canada on Sunday for a five-day visit, his primary purpose will be not to preach, but to do penance. He plans to apologize for the role of the Roman Catholic Church in Canada's residential schools system, which from the early 19th century until 1996 separated indigenous children from their families and culture. Canada's government forced 150,000 children into schools, 60% of which were run by the church. They were housed in inhumane conditions, and many were sexually abused. A horrifying number died. Last year, hundreds of unmarked graves were discovered at sites of former schools. In 2015, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, established in response to lawsuits brought by Indigenous Canadians, said the schools were part of a program of, quote, cultural genocide. Francis has already said sorry. In a trip that will take him to Alberta, Quebec, and the Arctic territory of Nunavut, he will atone at the scene of the crimes. China's Quest for the Heavens Tiangong, China's space station, the name means, quote, heavenly palace, has been under construction since 2021 when its first module was launched. On Sunday, if all goes to plan, a second module named Wentian, quote, quest for the heavens, will be blasted into orbit from a spaceport at Wenchang off China's southern coast. A third module is due to launch later this year. Even when finished, probably next year, the 100-ton Tiangong station will be a tiddler compared to the 440-ton International Space Station. But China is not welcome aboard the ISS. A law in America, one of the ISS's main funders, prohibits official contact with China's space program over national security concerns. China's space program is nevertheless marching forward. It is only the third country, after America and the Soviet Union, to have mastered crude spaceflight. Whether Tiangong will have any value besides national pride is another question. Many scientists consider the ISS, with an estimated price tag of over $100 billion, the most expensive white elephant ever built. Queen of the Mountains Since 1989, when Jenny Longo won the Tour de France Féminine for the third consecutive time, France's premier long-distance cycling race had no room for women. Organizers blamed a lack of money and interest, but times have changed. As the men's Tour de France finishes in Paris on Sunday, a new competition, the Tour de France Femme, has its own grand départ. 
Television audiences in 170 countries can watch as the women's peloton races across a 1,029-kilometer, or 639-miles, circuit over eight days. The men's race was 3,350 kilometers, over 21 days. As with most professional sports, women's cycling suffers from less money and exposure than the male version. The female winner of the yellow jersey will take home 10% of what her male counterpart makes. Still, the race marks a gear shift. Broadcasting deals have locked networks into showing the 2023 Tour, and Zwift, a training app, will sponsor the Tour de France Femme for at least four years. Female cyclists have slogged to reach this point. It should be downhill from here. Weekend Profile The Climatologists Transforming How We Discuss Weather Quote, people don't have to die in their tens of thousands, says Frederica Otto with a touch of exasperation. In 2014, Dr. Otto co-founded the World Weather Attribution, WWA, initiative, a collective of climate researchers and statisticians that has transformed the understanding of extreme weather events, such as the remarkable trio of heat waves that hit Europe, China, and America this week. The idea was born of frustration with the academic distinction between climate and weather. Quote, climate denotes macro, long-term trends. Quote, weather is what's going on outside your window. Most people are more interested in daily weather patterns than decadal or even longer-term patterns. In the 2010s, a group of researchers decided that, to make the world understand why climate change mattered, they needed to introduce it into conversations about the weather, including the forecasts people see on television. Thus was the WWA conceived. The group works with the Red Cross Red Crescent's Climate Center, which gathers data on the number of people affected by any given climate event. If the number passes a certain threshold, Dr. Otto and her collaborators, Shilka Philip and Sarah Koo of the Dutch Meteorology Institute, activate the WWA community. They canvass, quote, everyone we know to form an ad hoc group of expert modelers. The exercise is, on the face of it, simple. To simulate two atmospheres, one with all the accumulated greenhouse gas emissions of the last two centuries and one that is unsullied. By comparing these two worlds, they can say whether a specific event is more or less likely to happen in a climate-changed atmosphere. This has led to headline-grabbing statements that the northern European floods last year were made up to nine times more likely by anthropogenic climate change, the Siberian heat wave of 2020 was many thousand times more likely, and the Pacific Northwest heat wave of 2021 would have been virtually impossible without historical emissions. Such statements and the underlying methodology are now part of the climate vernacular. They are also applied elsewhere, such as in legal disputes where people or communities seek compensation for climate-changed-induced damages. Extreme heat is one of the most straightforward impacts of global warming, and virtually every contemporary heat wave was made worse or more likely by emissions, or both. But Dr. Otto worries that this engenders fatalism. Quote, yes, it's climate change, but we are also not powerless to do something about it, she says. Quote, that is what's missing in the conversation. The winners of this week's quiz. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Jin Hong Park, Suwon, South Korea. North America, 
Ashley Easterling, Bay St. Louis, United States. Central and South America, Carlos Flexa Ribeiro, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Europe, Julius Kinsinger, Hamburg, Germany. Africa, Hasit Raja, Nairobi, Kenya. Oceania, Ian Harland, Wellington, New Zealand. They all gave the correct answers of Charlie Watts, Patty Hearst, Linus Pauling, I Love Lucy, and Woodstock. They are all characters in the Peanuts cartoon strip, Charlie Brown, Peppermint Patty, Linus, Lucy, and Woodstock. And visit the Espresso app for our new weekend crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Alexandre Dumas, who was born on this day in 1802. Rogues are preferable to imbeciles, because sometimes they take a rest. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.